I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Rape in the first degree, sodomy in the first degree, sexual abuse in the first degree, attempted murder in the second degree. This is Alec Roberts in New York. There were more indictments today in the brutal gang rape of the 28-year-old Wall Street executive. Five teens between the ages of 15 and 17 were charged with numerous rape, sodomy, and assault counts. Pleas by their attorneys for bail were denied. You've seen these young children come before you, Judge. You've seen what they look like. You've seen the mass hysteria that's in the paper. Perhaps that was some advantage of having them to come before you so you could actually see these children. You better believe that I hate the people that took this girl and raped her brutally. You better believe it. And it's more than anger, it's hatred. And I want society to hate. Welcome to I Can Murder a Podcast Series 8, episode number 10. I'm back with the boys who have turned into men. <laughs> How you doing, Ben? I swear. I'm uh, doing, doing really well. Doing really well by the moon and the stars. Isn't that boys to men? No, that's all for one. Oh, no, I've done that wrong. I'm doing very well, though. Doing very, very well. Um, yeah. Go, Hold on quick. a second, Ben. How you doing, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. How does it feel to be... 55.555 recurring percent of the way through the series. Wow. Oh, um, basically halfway. <laughs> but, you know, you've got to be precise with these things. For sure, for sure. Uh, it, it, feels, it feels great. This series is kind of, for me, it's kind of flown by. As we said, it's been very yeah. eclectic with the mix. But mm-hmm. Ben, um, back to you. How you doing? Yeah, yeah, really well. Yeah, really well. It was all for one. I just did do a double take just so I don't look silly at the very start of the episode. But no, doing really well. Um, yeah, we've we've arrived at a, another very different dynamic in terms of the case today. But yeah, doing really well. Had a great week so far. Long may it continue. I hope everyone else out there is having a lovely week so far or weekend. And uh, just, just hang in there. It's going to be great. And this will actually be our 99th upload on, onto our podcast uh, audio sites. So this is uh, number 99. I mean, we've got some minisodes in this. It's kind of a little bit, not full main episodes. But uh, yeah, what a number to hit. So very happy about that. 
Yeah, we worked out that Series 9, Episode 1 uh, is going to be the actual 100th official release without including any of the uh, Minnesotes we've slung up. So that's that's pretty exciting. It's full of stats, boys. <laughs> it's really yeah, riveting it's stuff. Heavy. And talking about numbers, today's case is the Central Park <laughs> 5. So... Uh, <laughs> But um, yes, it, we're back again with a new case and it is a very different case. As we've said, this this series has been very eclectic. Um, so we're excited to get into this case. It's one that caused a lot of controversy at the time, and uh, but we're excited to go through it with you. Absolutely. And we've got eight more main channel episodes coming uh, the rest of series eight. So uh, do stick with us. Uh, and if you aren't already, why not follow us on our socials at Could Murder a Pod? Because soon in the in the coming probably month, we'll have the audience case vote for episode 16. And that will likely be on there uh, sometime in the coming weeks. So give us a follow and give us a vote. Pick the case you want to see coming. It's already been a very mixed uh, series, hasn't it, in terms of the different ones we've covered. So we have our theories on what the audience might vote for, but we're excited to see what they come up with and yes we've uh, just actually celebrated our third birthday three years doing our Kimura podcast which is very exciting <laughs> uh, some thought we would never make it me being me being one and to celebrate we're going to be slashing our prices in half over on the website um, and we're, we're going to be doing that until the 1st of September so why not you know a little birthday gift to us but gift to you back go over there join the cult get access to well over 120 cases 125 extra minisodes over on the website and you can join us with live streams as well good old birthday slashing of prices exactly yeah happy birthday everyone but ben enough waffle from us today's case do you want to fill the guys in a little bit more about it yeah absolutely so this is one that we've we've talked about for um uh, quite a while covering on the podcast it's a it's a fascinating one as tom said we are of course covering the case of the central park five also known as the when they see us case also known as the central park jogger case also known as the case of Corey, kevin antron Youssef, and raymond also referred to as New York's biggest miscarriage of justice. But yeah, a, a very upsetting case indeed. Um, one that, as Tom said, caused a lot of controversy at the time and still does to date. But as is the norm with this series, we're going to hand over to our wonderful producer, Dan, to set the scene. Before we do that, who wants a riddle? <laughs> oh my God, he's done it again. Play that bloody jingle. Dan's riddle, sly and mischievous grim. Twist and turn, a mind game to win. Puzzles are plenty, a chuckle or two. A laugh and thought, we find our clue. Riddles! Right, it's going to get a little bit harder now, okay, boys? Um, That's fair. Specifically because there's, it's quite hard to find true crime-related riddles. Um, so it's going to be a bit more generic now. Two in a corner, one in a room. Zero in a house, but one in the shelter. What am I? Ooh. So I'll leave that tingling on your little brain cells. Yeah. And we'll, um, we'll come back to it at the end of the episode. A bit of mind exercise there. Yeah. Oh, oh, maybe, it's, maybe it's gone too hard too quick. But yeah, we'll, let me, we'll let me get off this treadmill. It does feel like a, <laughs> a big leap up from the lighthouse, to be fair. Okay. In the year of 1989, five black and Latino teenagers, each aged between 14 and 16, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana... Antron McRae and Youssef Salami were wrongly convicted for the brutal assault and rape of a white female jogger during a late night in Central Park, New York City. The case was marred by coerced confessions, questionable evidence and a rush to judgment driven by racial bias and media sensationalism. The five young men, later exonerated through DNA evidence in 2002, each spent between 6 and 13 years behind bars for a crime they evidently did not and could not have committed. 
This horrific incident brought light to the systematic flaws within the criminal justice system and underlined the devastating impact of prejudice as well as the toll it can take on the lives of innocent individuals. So with this case in particular, what quickly becomes clear is that there are flaws at almost every level. The police, the press, the so-called witnesses, and I think it's summed up very neatly by Jim Dwyer, an author who was at the time of the case a reporter for the New York Times, who had gone on to say the following. Whatever you do in life, you make mistakes. And you either face your mistakes or you don't. I don't think the press faced its mistakes. I don't think the police department faced the truth in what had happened, because the truth of what had happened is almost unbearable. By prosecuting the wrong people in the Central Park jogger case, the true culprit continued to hurt, maim and kill. And they could have had him, but they got stuck with a mistake and they are still invested in that mistake. So yeah, with this, obviously, it's a, I mentioned it's a slightly different one for the series, but I, I remember being and still being very upset by the West Memphis 3 case um, and there are elements of, although a lot of people probably would disagree with this, there are some elements of the making a murderer case, particularly if you lean more towards the Brendan Dassey side of things that I find upsetting. But we've talked about uh, the show a lot on the podcast before. We've we've talked about the Netflix series Confession Tapes, which again is full of examples of um, miscarriages of justice that again is is, uh, is really, really difficult to deal with. But this one in particular, uh, yeah, it, it, it upsets a lot of people to the core. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's very infuriating as well. And ultimately, yeah, it's an absolute travesty what happened to these five young men. Um, but there have been feature length documentaries made about this case. There's also an entire dramatized series made by Netflix on the case. And uh, we always say it, but this week is a big, big case indeed. So what we're going to do is provide a bit of a background on the Central Park Five or the, the boys themselves, um, as well as kind of paint a picture of what New York City, particularly Harlem, uh, was like at the time of the incident. Uh, New York was considered one of the most criminally volatile cities in the world during the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, facing the crack cocaine epidemic, gang wars, racial division, police corruption, poverty and homelessness, as well as having surging crime rates uh, amongst all of that. In 1989, the year that this case hinges on, New York City was the worst city in America for street robberies and it set a new, at the time, record for murders. With 1,905 people killed in New York across that year, the first one occurring just 41 minutes into the new year. Uh, which is, yeah, which is yeah, terrifying. Uh, it's a huge case, so let's jump into it. What we're going to do is start with a bit of a background on the boys and then move on to New York and then our timeline. Boys, the boys, boys, man, I got it. Keep that there, not be. I'll slap a bit. Um, <clears throat> Kevin Richardson was born on the 21st of October, 1975. He was the youngest of the five children born to Linda Cuffey and Calvin Richardson. Kevin, like his many siblings, was born and raised in Harlem, New York City. The family had a low-income household, living in a very modest apartment that was surrounded by several housing projects in the West Harlem area. Kevin and his siblings faced the very immediate challenges of growing up in an environment that was riddled with poverty, high crime rates and had very limited opportunities for young people. Despite their initial difficulties in raising such a large family, Kevin's parents, Linda and Calvin, worked extremely hard to provide for their family, but financial constraints and the lack of stable employment opportunities were a constant presence in their lives. Despite the challenges, Kevin's family was very close-knit, and he shared a strong bond with his siblings. The Richardson siblings would often look out for one another if they encountered any kind of problems in their neighbourhood. As a young boy, Kevin liked to hang out on the streets of Harlem alongside his many friends, including Raymond Santana and Yusuf Salam. 
uh, who will we'll speak about those two in more detail shortly. Kevin was a very friendly, easygoing child who found it easy to get on with most people. These friendships that Kevin formed were all local to the neighbourhood that he lived in and were a natural part of growing up in the, as, as Tom mentioned, quite a tight-knit community. The boys all came from similar family backgrounds, so of course they understood the struggle of being raised in Harlem at the time. The group of friends spent time together engaging in typical teenage activities like watching TV, hanging out, playing sports and exploring their city. At just 14 years old, Kevin would be the youngest of the so-called Central Park Five. We're then going to move on now to Antron McRae. So Antron McRae was born on the 14th of January 1974 and just like Kevin, Antron was born and raised in Harlem, though his family resided in East Harlem rather than West. He was the oldest child of Linda and Bobby McRae Sr., having a younger brother called Bobby Jr. He had a very close relationship with his parents and was heavily protective of his baby brother. Just like Kevin, the McRae family lived in an apartment in a neighbourhood that faced many economic struggles and social issues. There was a good deal of homelessness on the streets and burglaries, armed robberies and break-ins were not an uncommon occurrence. And uh, yeah, An Antron is the uh, quite an interesting member of, of the five boys. He seems more like the not the outsider but the other boys seem to at least know one or one or more of the rest of the group whereas Antron was kind of he just knew of them Antron's early years were marked by an incredibly strong bond with his father Bobby who was referred to as someone who was quote a fiercely supportive and constantly reassuring loyal presence in his life Antron enjoyed spending time with his dad, engaging in activities such as fishing and playing sports, and he looked up to his father as a role model and aspired to be just like him, following in his footsteps. So yeah, Antron's father, I believe he coached one of their little league teams or was some form of sporting coach for, for the boys. Uh, yeah, very much a role model and very much someone that, that Antron respected and uh, desired to be just like. Yusuf Salam was born on the 27th of February 1974. Like the rest of the boys, he also grew up in Harlem and faced the challenges of a neighbourhood, grappling with poverty and social difficulties. Yusuf was raised by a single mother, Sharon Salam, who worked as a daycare provider, and his father left the family when he was just a baby. He had a close-knit family that included his siblings and extended relatives. Yusuf was known for his intelligence, curiosity and eagerness to learn, displaying a strong interest in his education and his future, having an interest in a wide range of subjects at school from a young age. Growing up in Harlem, Yusuf experienced both the joys of the community and the struggles of living in a neighbourhood facing crime and inequality. He formed friendships with the other young boys from the area, including Kevin Richardson, but also with Raymond Santana and Corey Wise, who we will discuss shortly. The boys would regularly play sports together and roam around Harlem, as well as exploring the different boroughs of the New York together. So now we're going to talk about Raymond Santana. Raymond Santana was born on the 7th of September 1974 in New York City, and, just like Antron McRae, grew up in East Harlem, unfortunately facing the very similar struggles growing up in a neighbourhood plagued by poverty and crime. Raymond had a passion for art and dreamed of becoming a fashion designer. He was raised by his mother, Rosemary Santana, who worked as a school aide. And his stepfather, I mean, there's, there's speculation about this relationship. Some say he was very close. Uh, some say that the stepfather was very abusive and distant, but it's, it depends uh, which side you lean on. Uh, but he did have a close relationship with his family and was the middle child amongst two other siblings. Despite the challenges of, again, a similar environment that the rest of the boys faced, Raymond's family provided a supportive and nurturing environment, instilling the values of resilience and determination. 
Growing up in Harlem, Raymond experienced the vibrancy of his neighborhood and formed friendships with other local boys, including Kevin Richardson and Yusuf Salam. These connections were a natural part of his childhood, and again, as we mentioned, some of the boys would know one another. Antron McRae seems to have just known of the boys rather than actually hung out with them too much, but again, they would all become sort of friendly towards one another, and again, they'd sort of roam around their city, uh, exploring different parts of New York. And yeah, a note on Harlem as well, because at this point, I feel like all we're doing is talking about poverty and crime around Harlem for the, for the time, but um, I stayed in Harlem a couple of times in recent years, and I absolutely loved it. I accidentally walked into a wine bar. I didn't. I thought it was someone's home. It's just a street corner open. So you thought you were walking into someone's home, but it turned out to be a wine bar. Well, I, I was walking. Oh, sorry. I thought this was someone's house. No, it was. So basically, it was like a street corner. It had like bifold glass doors. So the basically the the corner of the the wine bar was exposed, and there's a crowd of people in there. So I sort of just walked in, and then it turned out to be a wine bar, and I had a I had a little wine. But I, I really liked Harlem really liked it good location nice people easy to get around yeah but although to be fair i did stay there sort of 25 years or so after this situation that we're talking about but yeah i i really liked uh i really liked harlem um but very yeah very different picture back then and even going back further so back in the 1920s 1930s harlem was in such a sort of poor way that it was referred to as the slums of new york and it was considered almost as bad as the Five Points area, uh, which had gained international notoriety in the 1900s as a densely populated, disease-ridden and crime-infested slum for more than 70 years. By some measures, though, the 1970s in particular was considered by historians as, quote, the darkest period in Harlem's history, with some Harlemites. So you've got New Yorkers, you've got Brooklynians. I think that's Brooklyn. Brooklynians? I made that up. With some, Harlem, with some Harlemites even leaving the area in search of safer streets and better schools in the suburbs. And those who stayed in Harlem would try to contribute to local efforts to revitalize their reputation, clean up the community, Unity, despite what some people considered external efforts to prove otherwise. According to an article on humanityinaction.org, Many older Harlem residents remember a time when the city was infested with drugs, plagued by high crime, and preyed upon by unscrupulous slumlords. Poverty, violence and drugs were the only constants. There's no question that Harlem was a tough place to live before redevelopment in the 1990s revived interest in the neighbourhood. And finally, Corey Wise. Uh, Corey was born on the 26th of July, 1972, in New York City. He had an exceptionally difficult upbringing in Harlem, which was consistently disrupted by his family struggles and periods of instability. Corey was raised by his mother, Dolores Wise, who worked as a home health aide, and he had two sisters, Marcy and Vanity. Corey had a complex relationship with his father, who it is alleged abandoned the family on occasion and experienced the dynamics of a tight-knit yet at times tumultuous and distant household. It's been alleged that he was physically assaulted by his father on a regular basis. Despite the challenges he faced, Corey was known for his friendly nature, loyalty to his friends, and would fiercely defend them should they ever encounter trouble. Corey's childhood, unlike the other four boys, did include brief periods of homelessness due to his mother's financial struggles. He also struggled in school due to an undiagnosed learning disability, as well as hearing impairment. This has been considered a possible side effect of physical abuse at home when he was a child. This instability contributed to the challenges he faced as he worked his way through his formative years. At 16 years old, Corey would be the oldest of the so-called Central Park Five. 
So yeah, so that's a, a bit of an overview on the boys. Obviously, with, with five backgrounds to cover, we have had to condense where we can. But you do see kind of some uh, some very distinct similarities in their upbringings. Obviously, they've all each got kind of slightly different family dynamics. But yeah, they've, they've definitely struggled during the early years in terms of the area that they're based in. As a group, the boys knew each other from their interactions from within their Harlem community. And as we've mentioned, it seemed like Kevin, Yusuf and Raymond um, were already relatively good friends with one another, whilst Corey was also friendly with Yusuf. That said, they were not all close friends with Antron. Uh, perhaps he of, of the five knew the boys the least, but their paths will have crossed due to their shared neighbourhood, age and social circles. And yeah, I, I believe as well, obviously we talked about Antron's father being very active in the community and very much keen on um, uh, coaching the boys' sports. So it's, it's likely they were also perhaps on the same sporting teams or something like that. So before we move into our timeline of events, what we're going to do is just go on to, I know we've talked about Harlem in quite a bit of detail there, but what we're going to go on to do is highlight just how rife with crime New York City was in the late 80s and how growing up here was absolutely not without its challenges. So New York City, 1989. Play some, like, sound effects here. Hey, I'm walking here! That's um, one. Move out of the way, kid! <laughs> What's that? What is that? Oh, get away from me! Um, <laughs> what could it mean? Get your slices. Hot dogs. No, that's hot dogs? Hot, hot, hot dog. That dog should be put down. Um, New York 1989. Much like the the upbringings of the Central Park Five, the late 1980s marked a highly tumultuous period for New York City and its almost 16 million residents, with local tensions reaching an all-time high. The landscape was stamped by a highly volatile criminal climate that encompassed a range of challenges including gang wars, racial division, the war on drugs, as well as the crack cocaine epidemic, growing crime rates and police corruption. This era saw the city grappling with an unprecedented surge in criminal activities, which left a significant and lasting impact on the city, as well as its reputation and subsequent media portrayals. Gang wars were rampant during the late 1980s, particularly fueled by the crack cocaine epidemic and the vast amounts of money and addiction that this would bring into the city. Various street gangs such as the Bloods, Crips and Latin Kings engaged in fierce territorial battles over drug distribution, resulting in violence and bloodshed on the streets. Many hundreds of innocent people, including women and young children, were killed or trafficked into the gangs. These conflicts exacerbated an already tense environment and contributed to the continued rise in crime rates. Yeah, a lot of gangs there. wonder how our gangs would have fared. What was yours again? Yours was like, it'll be great. Mine was, it'll be all right on the night. And yours was, it'll be even better on the night. Oh. (laughs) Racial division further added to the up and down nature of the criminal climate at the time. New York was described as a, quote, under-policed city with crime out of control and a criminal justice system that just wasn't working. Some of the poorer communities of New York, and particularly the communities of non-white ethnic backgrounds, bore the aggressive brunt of law enforcement's crackdown on crime, often tarring any individual with the same brush in terms of gang membership assumption and often experiencing disproportionately aggressive policing and profiling. So essentially, yes, some some, uh, police officers would assume if you were of a certain ethnic background, you were immediately a member of a gang and therefore committing a crime. This strained relationship between the police and minority communities heightened tensions and eroded trust, further fueling a cycle of crime and mistrust. Reverend Al Sharpton even said in 1987, We cannot reform institutional racism or systemic policies if we're not actively engaged. It's not enough to simply complain about injustice. 
The only way to prevent future injustice is to create the society we would like to see, one where we are all equal under the law. New York is now the capital of racial violence. As well as this, Yusuf Salam, one individual of what would later become the Central Park Five, would go on to say, You're not the same as everyone else, and nobody ever asks who you are. As black and brown people in New York City, it's as if we were born guilty. The war on drugs we mentioned briefly in the crack epidemic was launched by the Reagan administration in the 1980s and aimed to combat the growing drug trafficking and abuse, not only in New York but across the country. However, its impact on New York City was well known to be deeply problematic. The heavy-handed approach to the police and legal system led to mass arrests, lengthy prison sentences of which disproportionately affected those in marginalised communities. Rather than alleviating the drug problem, this approach often exacerbated the number of criminals on the streets by pushing low-level offenders into a cycle of incarceration. The introduction of crack cocaine brought a new level of drug-related chaos to New York City. The drug was relatively inexpensive and highly addictive, making it easily accessible to a wide range of individuals. The epidemic was particularly destructive in low-income neighbourhoods, where unemployment, poverty and a lack of opportunities intersected with the lure of quick and easy highs. As crack use soared, the city experienced a sharp rise in drug-related crimes such as robberies, burglaries and even homicides, as individuals desperate to feed their addiction turned to increasingly desperate measures. The crack epidemic of the 1980s was a devastating and transformative event that had a profound impact on New York City. This period was characterised by the rapid spread of crack cocaine, a highly addictive and potent form of the drug, throughout the city's neighbourhoods. The crack epidemic fueled a surge in violent crime, addiction and social instability, leaving lasting scars in communities and contributing to the city's overall decline. The crack epidemic also had a devastating impact on families and communities. Many households were torn apart by addiction, leading to strained relationships, neglect and shattered homes. Children born to addicted mothers faced a range of health and developmental challenges, perpetuating a cycle of vulnerability. The social fabric of neighbourhoods was further eroded as residents lived in constant fear and communities struggled to cope with the crime and chaos that accompanied the epidemic. The crack epidemic not only contributed to a surge in crime rates, but it also exposed deep-seated issues relating to poverty, inequality and the lack of effective social support systems in the city. So yeah, New York at the time, obviously we've talked about the uh, the gang wars, the rise in crime rates, the racial division, and now obviously you introduce to that uh, landscape the crack cocaine epidemic and it's yeah it's becoming even more violent even more volatile there's there's so so much going on and in the poorer communities uh or, or the poorer neighborhoods uh, yeah these crime rates would rapidly soar so with all of that in mind as crime rates continued to surge new york city became notorious for its high levels of violent crime including homicides serial killers sexually violent crimes and robberies i did actually watch as well i don't know if this was necessarily in the same time period I recently watched that uh, Times Square killer, the torso killer. You haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I, I tried it a couple of times and it was just a bit slow, but then I actually watched it properly and it's not bad. Not bad, but there was also... Torso, so. <clears throat> also, we're, we're doing uh, Netflix uh, a load of favours this week, but there's also the uh, Trial by Media um, uh, series on Netflix, which I think is fascinating. And that has the Subway Vigilante, uh, and that was a, a sort of similar time. And then you had the Son of Sam murders in the previous decade. So the the fear of crime itself, without everything else that we've just mentioned, uh, was was very much present in daily life, contributing to a sense of urban decay and prompting New Yorkers to adopt precautionary measures, often carrying with them concealed weapons, double locking their doors and travelling in large groups. 
This environment understandably made people feel even more insecure and on edge about the likelihood of them falling victim to a crime. So amongst these already terrifying challenges, uh, so you've got gang wars going on, you've got drug, uh, drug trafficking and drug addiction going on, you've got poverty, increased crime rates, you've got murderers, on, you've got everything going on that you could imagine. Amidst this already, instances of police corruption emerged more and more as a troubling reality. Scandals such as the Dirty 30 and the Mullen Commission revealed cases of officers engaging in bribery, drug trafficking and other illicit activities. This erosion of integrity within the police force further deepened public mistrust and hindered effective law enforcement. So yeah, you've got you've got cases of, of obviously the racial division, you've got police essentially profiling individuals here completely unfairly and now the trust between different communities and 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 the police force has is is at a a greater divide than ever before there's also and this isn't a netflix one so i'm not doing you know i'm not on on the payroll with netflix but there is an amazing documentary film called the 75 which is all about police corruption in the 75th precinct of the new york police department during the 1980s and yeah i, I watched that years ago um, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's something that you just can't believe even happened uh, that was going on on a daily basis if you were a corrupt police officer in New York. In 1989, New York City was grappling with high crime rates across several of its boroughs, but certain areas were particularly affected by the surge in criminal activities. The boroughs that generally experienced some of the worst crime rates during this time were the Bronx and Brooklyn. The Bronx and the neighbourhood of Harlem in particular were known for its elevated levels of violent crime, including homicides, robberies and assaults. Poverty, social challenges and lack of economic opportunities contributed to the prevalence of criminal activities in this borough. An extra point to add, although we have obviously focused heavily on New York, it's important to mention that crime rates were on the rise over many other cities and many other countries in the world. The same can be said about the miscarriages of justice. America always gets a lot of stick for this and that could in part be down to the United States being the subject of more wrongful conviction research than any other country in the world. The results, which are quite troubling, from 1989 to 2017 alone, more than 2,100 people were wrongfully convicted and subsequently released from prison because of evidence of their innocence. So that is a big number. And you can only imagine how many are still locked away or sadly died in prison. So this is also another crazy stat. Uh, In the United States, which houses a fifth of the world's prison population, as many as 97% of federal criminal cases are resolved through guilty pleas involving unregulated negotiations between prosecutors and defendants. In 2015, 44% of documented US miscarriages of justice involved cases where the defendant had pleaded guilty. Yeah, that I couldn't believe that when I saw that. But then you you do, obviously, we've seen all the documentaries where <clears throat> there's um, uh, negotiation tactics, there's coercion, there's a lot of pressure or yeah. extended periods of interrogation where, you know what, I'm just going to plead guilty. But 44% of miscarriages of justice are stemming from, in that year, people that just said, I'm guilty, I've done the crime, I've admitted to it. Which is, yeah, it's crazy. It's easiest to throw it off there. They've got more on you so they can get more more time on you unless you just go on that, yeah. You get, you exactly. get, more, you get less time if you just admit it. Exactly. Yeah. So Kevin Richardson, who was one individual of what would later become the Central Park Five, said the following. It needs to be known what we went through. We went to hell and back. We have these scars that nobody sees. 
But as well as we mentioned, obviously, that a lot of the focus here has been on New York and, and Harlem in particular. It's also important to know that instances such as these uh, miscarriages of justice were happening all over the world. A particular flurry of incidents occurred in both Ireland and England um, as a result of conflict between the British rule of Northern Ireland and the Irish Republican Army. So in the 1970s, there was a series of high-profile cases where the convictions were later recognised as miscarriages of justice. And that includes the guilt Four from 1974, the Birmingham Six from 1975, the Maguire Seven from 1976, and the case of Judith Ward from 1977. And basically, there's so many similarities here. Obviously, there is a, a heavy political uh, element to this, but these cases featured false confessions, police misconduct, non-disclosure, and issues about the reliability of expert forensic testimony, which again, uh, is, is very similar to the Central Park Five. And there's also an additional factor which obviously impacted on the decision-making process during both the investigation and the prosecution of these cases, which was their very high public profile and the media attention that it received, as well as the pressure to obtain convictions and restore public confidence, which once again is exactly the same as the case of the Central Park Five. So, New York was a cauldron of crime, poverty, drugs, prejudice, police corruption and gang wars, and it was on the brink of boiling over during the night of April 19th, 1989. One incident would occur that night, which would later go on to become one of the biggest miscarriages of justice, not only in New York City's history, but the whole of America. So we started our episode with a quote from then New York Times reporter Jim Dwyer, and we're going to leave you with one before moving to our timeline. I look back at the Jogger case and I wish I'd been more sceptical as a journalist. A lot of people didn't do their jobs. Reporters, police, prosecutors, defence lawyers. This was a proxy war being fought and these five young boys were proxies for all kinds of other agendas. And the truth is that reality and justice were not part of it. And it is here that we move to the timeline of the nightmare in Central Park, the Central Park Five. 19th of April 1989. A large number of young people congregate on the outskirts of Central Park. This includes Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, Antron McRae, Yusuf Salam and Corey Wise. 
Though they were not necessarily all hanging out together, many of the boys were playing basketball on the streets or having fun with their friends, and Corey was actually at a family dinner. It was a busy evening, uh, a busy evening in Harlem in particular. There were lots of kids playing in the street, and uh, although it was getting late, a public holiday was coming up, and the boys were all in very high spirits. Raymond Santana Sr., Raymond's father, who was watching out on the boys from his home, had noticed the crowds becoming larger and larger, with a number of new faces that he didn't recognize suddenly congregating in the area. Through his fear of things getting out of hand, obviously as we've mentioned in a lot of detail already, crime, drugs, gangs were rife in the area at the time, he decides to advise some of the boys to go to the park, rather than being out on the streets. On this, he said the following. I told them, you know, too much trouble on the corner, go to the park. I sent them there that night, so I feel guilty too. Corey Wise, who was making his way home from eating at a restaurant on 110th Street, bumped into Yusuf, Kevin and Raymond. Here, they noticed a large group of what they described as good kids and bad kids, some out to have fun and some out to be wilding. And this large crowd that they, they, they observed had gathered on 110th and Madison, and within this large group, they noticed Antron McRae. Just past 9pm, a group of over 30 teenagers, including the five boys, enter New York City's Central Park. They enter via the entrance at 110th Street and 5th Avenue. The youths plan to participate in an activity known as wilding. According to Dictionary.com, wilding is the, quote, practice by a group of young people of going on a random spree of violent criminal activity. On the five boys making their way into the park, Corey, Yusuf and Kevin said the following. Walk in. Feel the guys horse playing with each other, jumping on each other's back, beat each other up, just horse playing. We start going towards the main road, and people started throwing rocks at the cars. A couple that was on a tandem bike, and some kids was harassing them or saying something to them. It looked like they were trying to pull them off, and the bicyclists kept they held their balance, and they just kept going. So in this instance, some of the group members have planned to rob and harass members of the general public within the park, and it is not clear if Kevin, Corey, Antron, Yusuf or Raymond were involved in this, though they each remain adamant to date that they were not. It seems as though many different people encountered the boys at night, and in amongst all the chaos, two members of the general public faced significant injuries that resulted in them having to have their injuries tended to at the local hospital. In one retelling of that night's events, members of the Central Park Five recall some of the group terrorising a homeless man. They collectively say... A homeless person starts walking across the street and the guys surround him. He had some food. Some of the guys out of the group took his and beat him up. They were beating up this guy really badly and, at some point in time, someone poured out a beer bottle and then smashed him in the head with it. Soon enough, the police are notified of the group's behaviour. Police officers arrive at the park and begin to search the local area. The group disperses as they see and hear a police car come towards them. Some members of the group hide behind trees, others try and run away from the area as quickly as possible. It has now reached 10pm and after a game of hide and seek with the police, the teens leave Central Park via West 96th Street. Police also decided to leave after the search for the youths was unsuccessful. However, police soon see a group of young men matching the description of the teens they have been searching for. The teens are walking north on Central Park West. Basically, there were numerous reports to police of young black males uh, causing trouble in Central Park and obviously that a homeless person had now been physically assaulted as well. The police attempt to arrest the young men, but petrified, the boys run away, jumping walls to desperately not be arrested by the police. Whilst many of the group are able to escape the police officers, five young men are detained. Two of these men are Kevin Richardson and Raymond Santana. 
And it is important to note at this point, the police are unaware of the attack on Trisha Maley that we will now go on to discuss. 20th of April 1989. Whilst there had been a group of young men running riot in Central Park, they were not the only ones that people needed to be fearful of that night. At the same time that some of the members of the group were harassing people within Central Park, Trisha Maley was taking her usual after-work run. Trisha was a keen jogger and would often run this route after work. She put her Walkman on and started her run, just as she had done so time after time before. However, this jog would end in tragedy. Trisha was struck on the back of the head by a tree branch. She was then dragged into a secluded area of grass off the path and then raped and beaten. Trisha would not be discovered for hours after her attack. So obviously everything that Tom's just described, all of this wilding, the attack on the homeless person, the big, big uh, congregation of people uh, entering the park, that was all sort of 9pm through to the early hours of the following morning. This is now obviously, uh, we're going into kind of the dusk hours here, but she wouldn't be discovered uh, until two men found her at 2am. During the time that Trisha had been alone after her attack, she lost between 75 to 80% of her blood. And when she was found, she was nearly fully naked and she was also convulsing whilst unconscious. After finding Trisha, the men sought help and called an ambulance, where she was then taken to Metropolitan Hospital. And from this point onwards, Trisha would now become known as the Central Park Jogger. And yeah, I mean, she was left in an absolutely unbelievable way here. It's, it's, it's actually remarkable that she survived. When Trisha arrived at the hospital, she was very close to death. She barely had any blood left within her body. From this point onwards, she would be in a coma for 12 days. And due to the severity of her injuries, she was never able to identify her attacker. And she had never been able to remember the attack. Obviously, she got hit by, or allegedly hit by a tree branch in the back of the head at night in Central Park. So it's, it's understandable as well as the impact that she suffered. Uh, even, you know, if you remained conscious, it would be hard to, to notice what had happened in enough time. She also suffered from hyperthermia serious internal bleeding, severe brain damage, and hemorrhagic shock. Her left eye had been moved from its socket and she faced 21 facial fractures. After hearing about the attack, police could see no other suspects than those they were already looking out for. By 11pm that night, police had in custody those who they believe had committed the attack, and this was the Central Park Five. These boys were aged between 14 and 16, and during their interrogations, the boys were allegedly threatened and coerced into giving false confessions. Yusuf reflected on the ordeal and said, I would hear them beating up Corey Wise in the next room. They would come and look at me and say, you realise you're next. The fear made me feel really like I was not going to be able to make it out. This pressure weighed on the boys and caused them to admit the horrific attack on Trisha Maley. Corey Wise was interviewed without the presence of a legal guardian as he was 16 years old. Four of the boys were also videotaped and this is where they admitted that they had participated in the attack of Trisha Maley by either restraining her or touching her in some way. Antron McRae said during his confession. What happened when you charged? You charged her, and like, you got her on the ground. Everybody started hitting her stuff. And she was on the ground. Everybody stopped and everything. And she got hit. And then, then we grabbed each of Like, I grabbed one arm. This other kid grabbed one arm. And we grabbed her legs and stuff. And we got her. Once the was getting on her. Like, getting on top of her. I'm sorry, you have to go. Once the getting on top of her. Okay, so first it was the black guy, then it was the Puerto Rican guy with the black hood, then you got on top of her. Did you have your pants down when you did that? No. Did you have your fly open? Yeah, but um, my penis wasn't in her. What happened? I just, like, my penis wasn't in her. I just, I wasn't, I didn't put nothing in I didn't put nothing to her. Well, when you got on top of her, 
you got on top of her so that you could have sex with her, right? Not really. I just like, I just doing this so everybody know. I just, I wasn't like really doing it. You said you were just doing it so that everybody what? Like everybody just like, just know I did it. Yusuf Salam wrote his statement rather than being video recorded. This became a confession, although he vehemently refused to sign it. The boys all gave different stories to the police, yet they all implicated each other. The boys were allegedly told that they would be able to go home if they told the truth. They were also supposedly told that their friends were using their names to implicate them in the attack. And then this caused the boys to use each other's names within their confessions. So yeah, this is one thing I already got from watching the interviews with the boys. They felt as if, you know, I'm not, I'm not the one that's going to look like a mug here in terms of if they're all going for me, then I'm going to get them. It was they, they, yeah. the police, I hate this a horrible way, the police played them perfectly in this. Oh yeah. Which is not, I'm not bigging up the police at all for what they've done. It's fucking hideous. But in terms of them manipulating the boys and getting them to say exactly what they wanted, they put all of them against one another. So all of them would say things. I mean, imagine saying, you know, and that's the thing is always people struggle to, to, to think about with this is it's, why would someone admit to doing something if they didn't do it? Well, they'd been in there for about 13 hours. They hadn't had any drink. They hadn't had any food. They were, it's overnight. They're so tired. They've been shouted at, threatened of abuse. Some being hit, like we said, all these things. Well, Corey as well had an intellectual disability as well that was undiagnosed at the time and a hearing impairment and, and had no one present with him whilst he was being interrogated as well. And, and like you said, if the police were trying to get between 20 to 30 black young men that had entered that park and they were only able to get five, but then tell the other four boys, look, name drop and say that Corey said this about you, Kevin said this about you, Antron said this about you, Yusuf, you know, it's easy to see how, as you say, the police would have played them against one each other, like, like you mentioned. It's- and as well, these are young lads that, you know, it's, can you imagine being at school? Like if, if and you're kind of where you're thinking was then, trying to get out of there, you want to leave. You've been told, if you tell us the truth, you can go home. And it's like, yeah. but the truth, by the way, is going to be you throwing your friends under the bus here in order for you to get out. So these boys were not the only ones that were arrested and taken for questioning regarding this attack. Other members of the young group of men who had been behaving antisocially at the park that night were also questioned, but many of them ended up blaming others. For example, Clarence Thomas told the police about his best friend, Corey Wise, and this led to Corey's eventual wrongful imprisonment. So we then move forward a week to the 27th and 28th of April 1989. The media frenzy that ensued after the attack became public knowledge was horrific. The teens were branded as coming from a, quote, world of crack welfare, guns, knives, indifference and ignorance, a land with no fathers, to smash, hurt, rob, stomp and rape. The enemies were rich, the enemies were white, as said by Pete Hamill who was a writer for the New York Post. So yeah, really horrific um, angle there from the press but they may as well also have been fed information or leaked information from the police of the time obviously there was a, 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 a corruption was rife at the time as well within the course of these two days on the 27th and 28th of april all of the boys were indicted for their alleged criminal activity the central park five as they were dubbed faced charges for attempted murder rape assault and rioting Four out of the five boys were charged as juveniles, but Corey Wise was charged as an adult. Because of his age, he was sent to Rikers Island Prison. Which, yeah, if you've ever read about Rikers, is not a nice place to have been sent. Rikers Island was a notorious prison. It earned nicknames such as Gladiator School and Torture Island. The prison showed that the city was, quote, unfair to those who became involved in the justice system, and the overwhelming majority who were caught up were black and brown men. 
as stated by Mr. Corey Johnson at the time, a New York City Council speaker. In 2019, it was announced that the prison would be closed and its proposed closure is in 2026. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a very famous or infamous prison uh, that's had many famous inmates uh, housed there over the time, including Tupac, Sid Vicious, David Berkowitz and Mark David Chapman. I believe also Lil Wayne has spent some time in Rock. Yeah, that's what it says in the notes, yeah. Yeah, I just said I believe it. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Lil, Lil Wayne. You try to act as if you have a bit of knowledge in the hip-hop game. Seen him live, bro. Seen him so, live. So have I, mate. Yeah, yeah, We were seeing Blink-182 cool. and he just happened to be supporting. <laughs> I think you went to get some merch when he was on. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> went on a beer run. The 1st of May, 1989. Donald Trump, who was in real estate at the time, pays $85,000 for a four-page article named Bring Back the Death Penalty, Bring Back Our Police to be printed in the press. In this ad, which calls for the death penalty to be used, he said, When they kill, they should be executed for their crimes. Many New York families, white, black, Hispanic and Asian, have had to give up the pleasure of a leisurely stroll in the park at dusk, a Saturday visit to the playground with their families, a bike ride at dawn, or just sitting on their stoops. Giving them up as hostages to a world ruled by the law of the streets, as roving bands of wild criminals roam our neighbourhoods, dispensing their own vicious brand of twisted hatred on whomever they encounter. Yeah, so um, $85,000 in today's money is, is, is more than that. So the article had a mixed response to which Trump heavily defended his own opinion. Talking to Larry King a few weeks later after the article released, he said, I am strongly in favour of the death penalty. I am also in favour of bringing back police forces that can do something, instead of just turning their back because every quality lawyer that represents people that are in trouble said the first thing they do is start shouting police brutality. So yeah, at this point... What was Trump famous for in 1989? Probably just the family? Real estate. He was very much, he was a known public figure. He was on a lot of talk shows and stuff like that. So mm. I think he did still have, I mean, Trump's gone through many different illustrations uh, of himself in terms of money as well. But it does seem to be, it's quite a political move from him, weirdly, yeah. way before he was there ever to do anything like that. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a big, he's taken a strong stance on it. Yeah, we just ran it through our spend calculator and uh, yeah, 85,000, almost a quarter of a million. So he's, he's either, as you said, using it as a political move or he has been, I don't know, impacted by this news. Well, I guess because Central Park, I mean, a lot of things I heard about this case was if that happened somewhere else, it wasn't in Central Park. It was just because like, Central Park's like the darling of New York. In fact, mm. it happened there was such a kind of horrible thing and also i mean for trump obviously he's with his lot of his real estate i think believe in surrounding central park as well he owns some of the buildings doesn't he so yeah he probably saw it as a particular stain on on the area that he had invested in and it probably would affect him negatively money-wise as well so I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was kind of more led by that but i mean he's always been very outspoken with his beliefs so, but yeah it does seem i mean today today he would just tweet it wouldn't he have the same impact, yeah. but then just yeah, spend eighty five thousand dollars on it. But I just thought with with everything that's happened in this timeline, and obviously you've got you've got bloody Donald Trump sort of slinging his oar in there, getting involved basically is what I'm trying to say. And he he actually was like, I think they should uh, you know bring back the death penalty, which I thought, wow, that's quite a statement, uh, Mr. Trump. So yeah, I thought Trump there. There's some powerful powerful words from uh, from Donald, and um, I thought, cool, that's interesting, really interesting. Didn't you do this last week? Did talk a bit about it last week, and ah. that's why I found it even more sort of interesting, especially for sort of um, not late, chrono then. chronological listeners. Yeah. yeah, really interesting, really interesting. Yeah, chuck me in. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Interesting facts. Interesting facts. 
Welcome back, welcome back. Um, I hope everyone's having a rocking August, uh, uh, enjoying themselves so far for the summer months. Uh, as, as this episode uh, came out just a few days after my birthday and the podcast's birthday, uh, the team here at uh, uh, Ben Carter's Interesting Facts thought, you know what, Ben, as it's kind of your Happy birthday... Happy 40th, by the way. Fuck yourself in the face. Um, <laughs> so, sorry, that all came out at once. Um as it's, your, no, as it's your birthday week, it's not birthday few days, just go ahead and do whatever you want. Um, so as as such, and kind of uh, related to, uh, kind of unrelated to the Central Park Five, but kind of related to last week's case, I'm going to go back to last week's episode, which would be, I thought, quite a pleasing experience if you're a, a chronological listener on a weekly basis, but otherwise it might irk you somewhat. Uh, I'm, of course, going back to last week's mention of Britain's most incompetent executioner. William Calcraft. <laughs> Here we go. So today we're talking about the poor craft of William Calcraft. Um, wow, oh wow. So as we explained in our Marianne Cotton episode last week, and spoiler if you haven't checked that one out yet, definitely give it a listen. It's a, it's an interesting episode. But William Calcraft. It's one of the best of the series, I'd say. It, yeah, it's enjoyable. It's got, it's got, it's got riddles. It's got jingles. It's got uh, nursery rhymes. It's got ooh, spooky bits. So, ooh, dirty recipes. Um, but yeah, William Calcraft. Uh, he was known as maybe the Ben Carter of the executioner's world. He liked to take his time, often go the scenic or more elaborate route, uh, more often than not. And occasionally he'd bend the rules. And uh, yeah, obviously a spoiler alert if you haven't already listened to the Marianne Cotton episode. But Mr. Calcraft's uh, or Calcraft path would cross with Marianne Cottons. Uh, initially a cobbler by trade, William is in the history books as the man responsible for hanging the last publicly executed woman and man respectively in Britain. So he holds that record in 1868. And William's lasting mark in his 45-year career as an executioner, however, was less of kind of a big historical figure and more of kind of a cloudy sort of laughing stock really uh specifically towards the end of his career laughing so more stocks. than <laughs> yes that's yeah he was he was um but you know people died so more than once william was accused of drinking on the job and showing his nerves on multiple occasions there was a time when william was set to hang a man simply named o'connor and uh when he uh set the trap door off the rope breaked the the rope the rope broke and left O'Connor alive, needing to be hung a second time. Although, as I mentioned, obviously, William's career went on for 45 years, despite many occurrences of, you know, the rope snapping and people falling. Um, he appears to have been uh, considered a particularly incompetent hangman. So it'd be rubbish at the... Uh his, 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 his consonants and vowels, uh, and frequently having to rush below the scaffold to pull on his victim's legs in order to hasten the death. William preferred a short drop uh, method of execution, which basically meant that the rope through the trap door might only be around three feet. Which That's the problem, surely, because that is not enough to break a neck. Exactly, it's just, just under a metre, um, and it wasn't long enough at all, as Tom said, to break a prisoner's neck, and therefore the deaths were not always instantaneous, uh, typically taken up to a few minutes at a time by strangulation. And some people then started to question, is he really incompetent, or is he just torturing these people? Yeah. Because, yeah, there were some questions there. Was he, so was he a cop, because he can't be a surely a full-time hangman. He basically was a 
Cobbler by day. Cobbler by day, hangman by night, or hangman by sort of yeah. Sundays. Torturer. But yeah. yeah, but he. people are saying, was he really incompetent or did he just like to torture people? And there's uh, the short drop method as well was particularly controversial. You're supposed to have at least a couple of metres. He only did it with just below one. But also people thought that he was a bit of a showman and did it this way because typically crowds of at least 30,000 people would attend some of his public executions and he was renowned for his poor taste. So sometimes he would even swing from his victim's legs or climb onto their shoulders in an attempt to break their necks for his baying crowd. In one of the first executions William ever carried out, his victim Thomas Jennings took more than four minutes to die. So it's ter- don't turn into a physical comedy routine. That's, that's very bizarre. That was in his younger days. He was a showman, uh, you know, sort of 45 years before mm. his death, before he retired. So he was a bit of a showman 45 years before he retired. But the, the latter end is, is quite comical. Another one, the last one I've got here is that another forgettable day at the office occurred when William was scheduled to execute a criminal by the name of Mr. B.H. Bousfield. Uh, However, in the days building up to the execution, William started to receive several threats that he would be, quote, shot on the scaffold if he tried to execute Mr. Bousfield. And this really worried William, who obviously was a nervous guy by nature, liked to drink, and these threats completely unnerved him. So much so that he didn't get any sleep for four days before the scheduled execution. Finally, the day came, and after releasing the bolt, securing the trap door, on which condemned Mr. Bill Bowsfield, William then ran off, uh, leaving Mr. Bowfield dangling by his neck. And uh, a few awkward moments went by, and Mr. Bowsfield was able to wrap his legs around one of the support legs of the scaffold uh, on the side of the platform, basically countering the, the hanging. So he was able to keep himself uh, a loose rope. Uh, Upon noticing this, uh, William's assistant tried to push him off, but but he wouldn't let go. And they then had to get a prison chaplain to go and find William to finish the execution, as he was just hanging by by a scaffold at this point and not hanging in the way that they had hoped. They found William cowering in a restroom and forced a petrified William to return to the scaffold, where he then, quote, threw himself around Mr. Bousfield's legs and by the force of his weight, finally succeeding in breaking his neck and strangling him. Uh, William's bungling on this particular execution later became the subject of a popular ballad throughout the late 1800s. There is a reason that William's executioner competitors said, Mr. William Calcraft came from a family of slow worms. He choked his prisoners to death. He throttled them. But I execute them. So, yeah, there you have it. By no means the excellence of execution. In fact, he kind of frazzled on the scaffold. Um, uh, Incapability at the infirmary. Um, struggled for for them then, but so did William. And yeah, just we mentioned him last week, and I thought I need to have a little bloody look at that. And uh, yeah, very slapstick. Was he based? Where is he based in Scotland? Because there was I went to a pub in Edinburgh called the Last Drop, and that was on the Ooh. that was on the kind of square where they would they would hang people. He was born in Chelmsford. Oh, so probably not. So yeah, probably not. But the Last Drop sounds like a great name for a it's pub. Good name. Good yeah. name. Back to the episode. <laughs> ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. June 25th, 1990. McRae, Salam and Santana are imprisoned for the attack on Trisha Maley. 
So as we mentioned earlier, only Corey was sentenced as an adult, but all of the uh, remaining members of the Central Park Five were tried as adults, but sentenced as juveniles, which was at the time a requirement by law. During the court case, the prosecution repeated that the DNA evidence found on the victim did not match the DNA of any of these young men. One of Trisha's socks contained unidentifiable seminal fluids, and the man that this DNA came from would not be revealed until many years later. Furthermore, the prosecution noted that all of the four boys recorded immediately recanting their confessions, this is obviously with the exception of Corey, after they had finished recording. So yeah, once they're, and it's alleged that there was tampering as when they started recording, when they stopped recording, what was allowed to be omitted onto the uh, audio, what was, what was uh, not shared. In addition to this, all of the confessions were inconsistent with each other. And during each confession, the boys tell a slightly different version of events each time. Furthermore, it seems as though they only add in specific details after they have been shown photographs or have been asked specifically how something happened. And these are very much like, yeah, these questions when they're asked how something happened, they're very guided questions. So, oh, was it, was, do you think she was coached? Hit? Yeah, coached, exactly. Yeah, so you see that a lot with, obviously, we earlier this series did the uh, Making a Murderer case and you saw that a lot. They, they did it very well with Brendan Dassey and they tried it with Stephen as well. As well as this, there was also a clear trail that was still visible in uh, in the grass on Central Park where Trisha Maley was dragged. I believe it was about 16 inches wide. And this trail uh, was clearly shown in many of the crime scene photos. The trail was only wide enough for one person and did not show signs that would have indicated a gang rape, as the police force had suggested. So yeah, she was dragged through a very narrow patch of grass through into a, a, a wooded area. Again, the way that the boys were retelling the events or, or guided or coached to retell these events absolutely didn't line up with the area that the event actually took place in. However, we cannot forget that Kevin Richardson did admit that a cut on his face came from the fingernails of Trisha Maley. But yeah, Kevin, in a later interview, would talk about how the uh, cut on his face actually happened. It was from a policeman hitting him around the head with a helmet. Uh, but obviously the police have coerced him into saying it was actually from a scratch from Trisha. So each of the boys had other people's DNA, including hair and blood, present on their clothes and whilst DNA testing at the time showed that this hair may have belonged to the Central Park jogger, DNA analysis was not as developed as it is today and with retrospect we know that this was not in fact Trisha Maley's hair. Although there was a lack of clear DNA evidence that linked the boys to the scene, eyewitnesses did report seeing some of them walking away from the 102nd Street Transverse Road which is the area where the Central Park jogger was attacked. More witnesses also reported Kevin Richardson saying we just raped somebody with Raymond Santana laughing that we made a woman bleed. August 18th, 1990. The jury found all three boys guilty of first degree assault and first degree rape in the attack on the female jogger. First degree robbery and three assault charges for the attack on the male jogger who was also attacked in the crowd. Second degree assault for an unrelated attack and first degree riot. The boys were each sentenced to five to 10 years behind bars. So Kevin was also found guilty of first degree assault and first degree rape in the attack on the female jogger. First degree robbery and three assault charges for the attack on a male jogger. Second degree assault for an unrelated attack and first degree riot, but was only charged with attempted murder in the second degree. And first degree robbery, rape and sodomy. He received five to ten years behind bars. 22nd of October 1990, so Corey Wise and Kevin Richardson were both brought forward for a second and separate trial. And on the 11th of December 1990, they were both found guilty for the attack on Trisha Maley. 
much of the evidence that had been used in the previous case against the remaining three members of the Central Park Five was used in this case. Yet, a new witness was called onto the stand during this trial, and that was Melody Jackson. So, Melody told the court that she had spoken with Corey Wise whilst he was in prison, and that he had told her over the phone that he did not rape the woman, but he did hold her legs down. Corey was friends with Melody's brother. Once again, DNA evidence was used in this trial, and the forensic examiner within the case found that the hair on Kevin Richardson most likely came from Trisha Maley. But again, it's, 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 it's under questionable terms because he went on to say that he was able to state these opinions to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. The jury found Corey Wise and Kevin Richardson guilty on the 11th of December, and Corey was found guilty for charges of first-degree assault, first-degree sexual abuse, and first-degree riot. He was sentenced to 5 to 15 years. And Richardson was the only one of the five defendants to be convicted of attempted murder of Maylee, and he was sentenced to serve 5 to 10 years in a juvenile facility. And another thing to note here is during the whole of this trial, obviously, it was, it was a big talking point for the press. The media were going crazy over it. And a lot of the families were outside protesting the innocence of their children, uh, of, the, of their community members. And one of these people leading the protest was Reverend Al Sharpton, who was a big voice in the black community. And it was always fine for the rights of black people being treated unfairly. So lots of the families were outside constantly protesting and wearing, even wearing T-shirts with the names of their children saying innocent on the front of them. I think that's a really interesting point as well, because obviously now it's big it's become not only a, a criminal trial but a very political one um, Al Sharpton has become involved Donald Trump has become involved all of the family members and friends are now involved and um, what's um, what, what's really interesting is I still felt like a lot of the boys and their families felt that maybe there, there was no chance based on the fact that they knew they didn't do it there was no chance that they would actually be convicted and um, yeah it's obviously gone completely the way that they had expected it yeah, hundred percent. I mean, like like with anything, if if you didn't do something, you don't think you're going to be punished for it, and you think the police will be looking for the person who did commit the crime. But it seemed like the police were ha happy to rest on their laurels and just assume that they'd done the job and didn't look any further into it. Um, a lot of policemen and a lot of people who leading the search, leading the case, would actually go on to it would help the, propel them in throughout their career because it was such a big case that they settled. But um, we're going to go into a bit more detail about obviously about what would what would turn this around. So at the sentencing hearing, Yusuf Salam read a poem aloud which said, I look upon this legal lynching as a test by my God Allah. I and many others know I told the truth. I would never disrespect my own religion by lying. Give me the max, as sooner or later the truth will come out. Anton McRae would also go on to say, I'm not going to let this stop me, I'm going to make it. And Raymond Santana would say, Everyone knows I'm innocent of the crime, I never did it. So we now move forward to the 12th of June, 2002. So yeah, we're going we're going forward uh, 12 years at this point. Convicted... <laughs> fucking scared the shit out of me, that. Well, turn your headphones down. I can hear my own voice now. <laughs> Sorry, bro. So we now move forward to the 12th of June, 2002. So yeah, 12 years have now passed. Convicted rapist Matthias Reyes, also known as the East Side Slasher, confesses to the attack on Trisha Maley. He said that he had followed her after he had spotted her running in the park. He then ran behind her for a while and kept running from side to side behind her to make sure that no one was following them. When he saw the opportunity, he attacked. So an interesting note here, Mateus Reyes was a serial rapist and his attacks were known to be extremely violent. In the June of 1989, he broke into a pregnant woman's home and raped her whilst her three small children screamed and cried for their mother in the room next door. 
this woman named Lourdes Gonzalez would later lose her life at the hands of Mateus Reyes. So Reyes would be caught by a woman's doorman and neighbour after he attacked another woman. Uh, now the woman was able to escape during this attack and she was able to tell her neighbour of the horror that had just been inflicted on her. Reyes followed the woman but was soon held to the ground. This led to his arrest and DNA evidence being taken from him. This evidence proved that he had attacked others and as a result he was sentenced to 33 years to life imprisonment for one murder, five rapes and two attempted rapes. In 2002, Reyes also confessed that he had acted alone in the attack on Trisha Maley. He allegedly decided to confess after feeling guilty that the Central Park Five were serving time for a crime that he had committed. And there's, yeah, there's audio of this as well. It's, um, it's, it's absolutely horrific because he kind of says it. He says it in quite a sinister way, I feel. Uh, but he basically goes on to say that he had met Corey Wise for a second time whilst he was incarcerated in Auburn Prison. The two had previously met whilst serving their sentences and got into a heated argument regarding a television in 1989. Both have adamantly stated that this is the first time they met and that they didn't know each other at the time of the, the attack in Central Park. Reyes later apologised to him for this argument and he and Corey began to talk, which apparently led Reyes to remorse. Speaking on his guilt, Reyes said, I know it's hard for people to understand, after 12 years, why a person would actually come forward to take responsibility for a crime. I've asked myself that question. At first, I was afraid. I was petrified. <laughs> At first, I was afraid, but I felt it was definitely the right thing to do. At the time, Corey Wise was the only member of the Central Park Five to still be incarcerated for this crime. It has been reported that during his imprisonment, he eventually stopped going to his parole hearings because he would not admit that he had done the crime. So yeah, obviously that's a clear sign that he's completely given up all hope and was, you know, he didn't buckle to them saying, look, just tell us you did it. And, uh, and this is the way that the police then viewed it or his prison guards viewed it as he would not admit it meant that he was not remorseful. And with hindsight, this is devastating. When Mateus Reyes confessed, a judge allowed Wise to be released immediately. On the 19th of December 2002, DNA evidence proves that Mateus Reyes did attack Trisha Maley. A sock which contains unknown semen is tested and a DNA match is found. This proves that he did sexually assault Trisha, but prosecutors did not think that this was solely enough evidence to show that he acted alone. Many pose the theory that both Mateus and the Central Park Five attacked Trisha. Some have questioned the possibility of them attacking separately, and others have a strong belief that Matthias was part of the gang that was attacking random members of the public within the park that night. However, Matthias combated these claims himself. He said that if this was the case, then why did the boys not give his name to the police when they were being interrogated, and whilst they were thrown in each other's names into the case? Furthermore, no blood was found on the teenagers. Trisha lost far too much blood for there not to be a drop of evidence on them. So Matthias was also able to tell the police things that only someone there that night would know. He mentioned about... Um, taking the keys, trying to think he was going to rob, try and rob the house. So he took the keys from her, and then he threw them away. He was he was able to remark on the coloured tights that she was wearing when she was jogging. He was he was basically able to give a description that only someone there on the night would know, or the police would know. And so people thinking maybe he was just claiming it. He knew these things, which was undeniable that he was he was there that night. Um, furthermore, a mark on Trisha resembled a link to an item of jewellery that Reyes owned. A medical examiner commented on this. The patterned injury over the prominence of the victim's left cheekbone is consistent with a left fist blow, striking at an acute angle, partially imprinting the image of approximately half of the prominent parts of Mrs. Reyes's ring on her skin. 
so that was the timeline of the Central Park Five. Obviously, we're going to go into a bit of the aftermath and talk a bit more behind uh, what happened uh, whilst uh, the the five were serving their sentence, how they were then released, and all of the kind of legacy and cultural impact that this has had um, in the years since, because there's, there's quite a bit still to go into. Matthias Reyes could never be actually convicted for the rape of Patricia Maley. This is because the statute of limitations on the case had run out. And according to Nett Lawman, who would know, the statute of limitations is a time limit for filing criminal charges against someone. After the time limit has passed, the government cannot prosecute, try or punish a person regardless of the evidence against him or her. The case is said to be statute barred. Today, Matthias is still in prison. He was eligible for parole in August of 2022. Trisha Maley made a name public after she released a book in 2003 titled I Am the Central Park Jogger. The book details how Trisha recovered from the attack and her injuries. It was the release of this book that allowed for the public to finally know the name of the person who had been previously dubbed the Central Park Jogger. So despite her injuries, and it was a yeah, it was an absolutely vicious, horrific uh, attack on her. Um, despite the extent of those injuries, she always remained of the opinion that she did have more than one attacker. But after it was announced that Mateus Reyes had confessed, she said, "When I heard the news that there was an additional person found whose DNA matched, that wasn't a tremendous surprise. But when he said that he and he alone had done it, that's when some of the turmoil started. Wondering, well, how can that be?" Despite being attacked, Trisha did not let this incident define her. She later became a motivational speaker in 1998 and used her experience to help others. She continued to jog after her attack and just three months after the incident, she joined the Achilles Track Club and in 1995, she ran the New York Marathon. She married her husband in 1996 and the two are still happily married to this date. She also continues her help with others by working with trauma victims at the hospitals where she was treated. So obviously we talked about uh, Trisha for many years remaining of the opinion that she had more than one attacker. However, then she also stated obviously it wasn't a, a, a tremendous surprise um, when uh, Reyes came forward. She had assumed obviously that um, Reyes was just an additional member of those that had attacked her. And despite uh, clear evidence showing this to not be true and that Reyes was the sole attacker, Linda Fairstein uh, continues, despite all of the overwhelming evidence, she continues to uphold the opinion that the methods used against the Central Park Five during their investigation and trial were lawful. And this includes obviously all the coerced in interrogations, all the kind of coached or guided questioning, um, obviously no, uh, no advisor or family member or legal representative being uh, present during the interrogations. She even believes that Mateus was involved with the gang and collectively all six of them attacked Trisha Maley. So just for some additional context there, Linda was the lead prosecution uh, for the case. So in those years, New York was incredibly divided and Linda had a lot of support, though she was extremely harsh in the way that she would accuse the defendants and um, assert them into this particular case. She obviously remained defiant even after... Uh, the evidence came forward and the admission from Matthias, um, she still remained adamant that the five boys uh, were guilty. In 2003, an investigation was conducted by the New York Police Department into their handling of the case. They found there to be no wrongdoing on their part, which if you're conducting yeah. an investigation into your own department, you probably don't, yeah. Despite the new evidence and wrongful convictions, many of the police departments still maintained their opinion that their arrests that day were correct. Many still hold the opinion that they arrested sex offenders that day. Which I don't know if that's a case of just pig-headedness or if it's a case of they'd rather think it was right rather than live with the fact they've arrested these men, these boys who lost their childhoods and, you know, were imprisoned. 
In 2019, a Netflix dramatization of the Central Park Jogger case was released. So the series called When They See Us follows the Central Park Five and was hugely successful. The show ended up receiving 11 awards from award shows in both the UK and America. Although many watched and enjoyed the show, Linda Fairstein did not. She said the show was so full of distortions and falsehoods as to be an outright fabrication. She did end up claiming defamation and taking Netflix to court. She said the show portrayed her as a racist and the ethical villain. Um, hashtag cancel Linda Fairstein was created after the show was released. Um, so she's the person I mentioned earlier as well. Her career, she, this gave her a massive boost back in the day when she was finally, finally able to settle the case. But now it seems like the uh, the crows are coming to roost. That's not even an expression, but I'm thinking <laughs> it. The pigeons are coming back to the nest, smugly. After the release of the series, When They See Us, Donald Trump was asked if he would apologise to the young men who were charged for the rape of Trisha Maley. He replied back with, if you look at Linda Fairstein and if you look at some of the prosecutors, they think that the city should never have settled that case. So we'll leave it at that. Trump never wants to admit when he's wrong, really, is he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he usually doubles down more often than uh, backing down, uh, mm. which is uh, yeah, a scary move sometimes to make. Linda as well, Linda Fairstein. So she obviously made all these comments about uh, Netflix, uh, sued them for defamation. She also tried to write. I mean, she's gone on to become quite a successful author regardless, but she did try to write numerous books about the case of the central part five but multiple publishers dropped her around the same time that she took uh, netflix to court um so i don't know in the documentaries i've seen she she comes across as very stern but very she was using politics and race almost as e trying to use it as evidence in this case it was, it was a bubbling cauldron at the time wasn't it and yeah. she happened to be the witch dancing around it that's bloody love that dan wasn't even listening so obviously a very highly pivotal moment in this case was when uh, Mateus Reyes came forward and later DNA advances uh, came forward as well in this case. And after lengthy multiple appeals, uh, Raymond Santana was finally released in 1995, Antron McRae in 1996 and Yusuf Salam as well as Kevin Richardson in 1997. Uh, unfortunately, Corey Wise had to wait another five years until he was released in August of 2002. Today, the Central Park Five are still majorly affected by the wrongful conviction that faced them for so many years, and clearly the courts agreed. It took them over a decade, but in 2014 they received a settlement of $41 million, with Corey receiving $12 million of that. On this settlement, Corey said the following. You can forgive, but you won't forget. You won't forget what you lost. No money can bring that time back. No money can bring the life that was missing or the time that was taken away. Yeah, because that's, that's the horrible thing for five young men. It's not just many, many years. So they've all served between sort of six to 13 years each. It's super, super important formative years of your life. Your, yeah, your adolescence definitely. gone. If you look at yourself when you're 15 to now, yep. and you think if you had that time in, yeah, in jail... You just learn a completely different way of life, not know how to interact, not know how to socialize. It's, it's horrible. The documentary is really painting that picture really clearly, just in terms of like how they're all still suffering. And it's not a case of, oh, you think, oh, you start thinking, yeah. oh, 12 million for that long. How long would I do it? It's like, it's not a joke. They, they lost their childhood, they lost their innocence. Yeah. Even when, the, even when the one, uh, even when some of them were released, they, they were, you know, applying for jobs, unable to get them because on the sex yeah. vendors list and, and whatnot, it was, yeah. Yeah. So also Raymond Santana Sr., Raymond's father, even decades on from this, still has so much trauma because obviously he was the one that said, boys, you know, go from the corner, go to the park. It'll be safer there. 
where obviously um how could he have known what was what was later yeah. to happen that night but it obviously it took many many years but eventually the boys were cleared of their charges they didn't have to go through a kind of west memphis uh three sort of deal and, and they didn't have to obviously go ahead and take a, an alpha plea um like the west memphis three did and as we we're saying with the people with, with the boys coming out finding it hard to acclimatize raymond santana actually ended up going back to prison following drug related charges he said he couldn't just he was sitting around he couldn't get a job he felt like it was a waste of space so the only way he can't he thought he could make money was basically starting to deal drugs and he eventually would be caught and sent to prison and his prison time was a lot uh, longer than it would have been um because obviously he'd already served time in prison so they actually put him in for a bit longer so when the boys were cleared and had their names cleared he was actually in prison for this drug charge um but then because essentially the first crime they were cleared of his time was knocked down and he'd actually already served that time so he wasn't actually free at the time when the, the names were cleared um but yeah, so it, it just goes to show there's always a ripple effect with all these things that, that go on. So a little bit of a brighter ending here when we talk about where the, where the guys are today. Uh, today, Kevin Richardson now has a high school diploma and has since married and has become a father. Antron McRae now lives in Atlanta with his children. Raymond Santana now owns his own clothing company named Park Madison NYC. He has also had a daughter. Corey Wise founded the Corey Wise Innocence Project. The project gives free of charge legal service to those who state that they have been wrongfully convicted. Yusuf Salam has had 10 children, has become a motivational speaker and author. Yes, luckily the men are all out now. And um, yeah, they're living the lives that, they, that they have, they've claimed back. So it's, yes, so that is the case of the Central Park Five. Um, but <laughs> we haven't finished the episode, so I mean, I thought there's a lot of talk about the Central Park. I mean, I, I think all of us have visited Central Park. Am I right? You guys have been there before? Oh yes, oh yes, yes. three times. Three. Oh, Ooh. bloody! Twice. I think I might have been three, but who knows? But I, I thought obviously this is a very um, sad story uh, connected to the Central, Central Park, and I thought maybe a couple of quirky tales about Central Park just to kind of lighten lighten the uh, the mood of Central Park. Um, so <laughs> it's time for TTs. Get them out, Dan. Mammy! Tommy's trivia! <laughs> That's terrific! So, yes, so a few little, uh, little, uh, I always say, is it tidbits? Yeah. T- I've, t- always, t- I've t- always said titbits. If you listen back to any previous episode, I definitely would say titbits. But see, a few little tidbits about about Central It is titbits. Is it? Yeah. Titbits. What does that even mean? Where does that come from? A small and particularly interesting item of gossip or information. Oh, I've got to show you a tidbit. Tommy's tidbits. Yeah, no, I don't like that. that no, I love it. That's too. good, actually. I might change the jingle. It's Tommy's trivia, mate. Tommy's tidbits. <laughs> Titific. <laughs> no. Uh, but yes, anyway, so... Tidbits! <laughs> Three little segments here. Uh, the first one I've called Cannons Away. So there was an old ship cannon which was stored in a place called the Ramble Shed in Central Park. This cannon was previously used, but had been retired for more than two centuries. But in 2013, when a park crew gave it a good old clean, cleaning the cannon, um, Mm. they discovered that it was ready for battle. It was containing a cannonball and nearly two pounds of active gunpowder. Wow. Kaboom. Which is, you would have thought you would check, like, early on, you'd check that, right? Like, or if I was there, I'd probably, probably sure of my powers, I probably would just light it. (laughs) And just aim it at someone and go, hey. Yeah. You um, love a bit of wilding, don't you? I do love a bit of wilding. I like rewilding. Um, then this one, I think, would def- definitely pique Dan's interest. I'm not sure if you've... I don't know if you've, if you've seen... Have you either of you seen Hoppenheim, Oppenheim yet? Nope. 
No. No, okay. Well, the Manhattan Project, apparently there's a huge underground complex under Central Park. And apparently it was utilised as part of the Manhattan Project. For those of you that don't know, the Manhattan Project was a military operation dedicated to the construction of the nuclear weapons. And it's heavily shrouded in mystery. So there's lots of conspiracy theories about the use of the thing that they believe is to be under Central Park and, you know, they mentioned aliens and whatnot. Another theory states there's a complex under Central Park equipped with over 60 miles of roads, an underground lake, which I've never really understood the purpose of an underground lake, an underground lake and one of the largest telephone exchanges in the United States. I'll I'll end on the underground lake. But um, yeah, the underground lake is a a mysterious one in my my eyes. And the other thing I I thought was interesting, there's a few people that have been spotted or animals spotted um, in uh, Central Park. Um, There was an alligator, but turned out to be actually a South (laughs) American... Turns out to be actually a South American caiman. (laughs) Didn't didn't believe his luck. Um, (laughs) And Susie Grunt, a 15-year-old girl that occupied a cave... Um, she lived near 1987. I don't know if she was actually called Grunt or if it's just the noise that she'd make for communication. Um, and there was an invasive species of frankenfish, which is a snake-headed fish that inhabited um, the waters there in 2013. And the last one, there was a three-foot tall, not so big, Bigfoot, spotted in 1997. These frankenfish are terrifying Ooh. looking. Frankenfish. The snakes of the water, truly. Ooh, I don't like snakes of water. Keep them in the underground lake if you ask me. But a three foot Bigfoot, that's nice. That's cute. That's cute. But yeah, I mean, um, that's a very cluster bomb of, of random things about Central Park. It wasn't very formulated. So apologies. I think I've let let, let my TTs down. No need to apologise, Tom. Um, I thought it was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. It would have been cool if you dived deeper in about that, you know, that uh, underground lake. That would have been... But then that's just a theory that people are saying they believe there to be underground cities and lakes yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, that is uh, that, that is that, and that is this week's case. I mean, Dan, pick a winner for that. I'm, I'm more than happy to concede there. Well, although it would have been suited much better for last week's case, I'm going to go with Ben for this week. So Ben, you get a point. Well done. Fair, fair. Oh, thank you, sir. I'm just Googling underground lakes, Tom. And uh, some of these photos, I mean, it's like a cave lake, I would imagine. Cave lake. They do look... Frankenfish. I tried to find a Central Park cave lake, uh, underground lake, but mm. they're bloody beautiful, some of these cave lakes. Well, there you go. Why not give it a little little Google? But Dan, I mean, I haven't figured it out, and I'm on the edge of my seat wanting to know the riddle. Yeah, I'm really sorry about this, because like I said, it's it's not necessarily true crime related. It's not true crime related. That's fine. Um, I might have to rethink that, because this is far too vague. But um, the, the riddle was, two in a corner, one in a room, zero in a house, but one in a shelter. What am I? Any Any guesses? Two in the corner. I've got an idea, but I could be wrong. I've tried to be, I think of... It's in a typical riddle fashion. Just think about it. Is it a piece of post? Oh, oh, oh. Like a letter or a, an envelope or something Two in like a corner. That. Stamp. One in a room. Oh. Zero in a house, but one in a shelter. Yeah. He's got... Oh, yeah, he's got it. This, see, this is, this is sick content. What is it? R. Fucking smashed it. The letter R. Oh, letter... Well done, Tom. Very impressive. Because I thought that was, that was very hard, actually. Well, yeah, I was until you did the little bit of a little bit of a gimme. I didn't have it at all. Yeah. 
Right. Well done. Dan's riddle sly and mischievous grim. Twist and turn and mind game to win. Puzzles are plenty, a chuckle or two. A laugh we thought we find our clue. Riddles! But yes, um, thank you so much, guys, for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with a brand new case. Ben, have you got a little sneaky clue for next week's case? Cool, blimey. Uh, yeah, of course I have. Uh, next week, here's my clue. Next week, you might want to hide half your bag of your favourite crisps. There you go. I mean, yeah, good luck with that. Um, And yes, guys, if you listen to us on Spotify or on iTunes, please leave us a cheeky little review. Uh, It helps more than you'll ever know. Thank you so much for your support. And we're excited to be back next week. And we have, we're we're getting through this season, but we've been, a few people saying this to be in the favourite season, which you do love to hear. You love that, don't you? You love that. Um, if if you want to go a, a little step further and help us out, it would be amazing if you could share us on your social medias, pop us in your Insta story, tweet about us. Uh, you can do threads, I believe, about us as well, uh, or, or TikToks, whatever you want to do. Threads. Just chuck us out there and tell your friends about us. We'd really, really appreciate it. And if you if you just can't wait until next week's episode, then at the time of recording, 125 minisodes that are really hour long, mostly at this point. Um, and we have our own private RSS feed so you can take them with you uh, so just head over to icmap.co.uk take a look uh, it is our birthday and producer Dan has slashed prices in half <laughs> to celebrate us turning my favourite number three happy birthday one and happy all birthday. happy birthday one and all and yes guys like we always say we say this all the time keep doing what you're doing mm. unless it's double downing and trumpy trumping I'm playing it very safe this week. Yeah, that's fair. Um, always check your cannons. Always check them. Yeah, dust them off. Dust if they're going to be decoration, check them before. That's me. All right. <laughs> Have a lovely week. Until next time. Two pip. See ya. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.